trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Welcome to Access to Excellence, and I'm John Hollis. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Lovejoy, a university professor and a conservation biologist who's considered the godfather of biodiversity. Tom, thanks for joining us. You've been again in the news as of late with your recent op-ed in Science Academy, along with Carlos Nobre, saying the Amazon's tipping point is not just something down the road, but it's here right now. Can you tell us a little bit about it and why this is so significant? Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. And for decades, we've known that the Amazon literally makes half of its own rainfall. And the wind direction is constant from the Atlantic to the Andes. And what falls is rain, then evaporates off the complex surfaces of the forest. But equally important is transpired through the leaves. So the the water is recycled maybe five or six times until it finally gets to the high wall of the Andes. Andes rises up, cools, and all that moisture drops out and produces the 20% of the world's river water, which is in the Amazon River system. Why should people here, I mean, why should that matter to people here in Fairfax or in Mason or here in Northern Virginia? Well, in fact, we now know that moisture from the Amazon contributes to Every country in South America except one. It does not contribute to Chile because it has this high wall of the Andes, which makes the rain shadow. So it's an anchor to continental climate. And there are even contributions beyond South America, uh, but it would be extremely destabilizing to the ecology of that continent and the welfare of the people who live there. So, Tom, your paper made a lot of headlines around the world in the science advances. What does your research show, and why is this significant news? Well, to, to give a little bit more background, so the minute we knew there was a hydrological cycle, there was a question of how much deforestation would cause it to degrade, so you didn't have enough rain for a rainforest. And then a couple years ago, Carlos... Uh, and I basically did a reassessment and realized that what was going on was more than just deforestation. There was also a negative synergy with climate change and extensive use of fire. And so we concluded that the tipping point of the Amazon is at around 20 to 25 percent. And it's really what happens in Brazil that's the most important part of that because the weather moves from east to west. And so the southern and eastern Amazon will be the first to be affected and basically not have enough rain to actually have rainforests. So you'd lose a ton of biodiversity, huge impact on local people, and a great pulse of carbon going up in the atmosphere and adding to our already worrisome climate change problem. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about this cycle? Obviously, the, the rain gets recycled on the ground and in the leaves. What does this mean when you don't have that forestation? How is this a problem for the whole natural cycle of things in the Amazon? So basically what happens in a deforested area, when it rains, most of the water runs off and it's not there to be recycled. And in the southern and eastern Amazon, where you're close to the lower limit of rainfall that will support a rainforest, that will be the first place to show it. And it will 
basically convert into some kind of a savanna vegetation. So that's that's what we're worried about. And what really woke us up is that in 2005, in 2010, and 2015-16, there have been historic droughts unprecedented historic droughts in the Amazon, which leads us to think that those are the first flickerings of the tipping point. And the irony is that this Amazon forest, which has been so helpful as far as sucking up carbon dioxide and preserving biodiversity, could actually hurt in the fight against climate change if it were to become a savanna. Is that correct? By emitting more carbon gases? So, so if you lose the southern and eastern Amazon, you lose an immense amount of carbon, an immense amount of biodiversity. And that would be released into the atmosphere. That's right. It'll all go off into the atmosphere and make it all worse. Wow. What has to be done immediately, Tom, and how optimistic are you that we can reverse the damage that's been done or at least prevent additional damage? So it's pretty clear what needs to be done. On the one hand, all deforestation uh, has to be brought under control. And when you can't control it, you have to match it with maybe three times as much reforestation. So in the end, what we're trying to do is move away from this tipping point through restoring the forest. What can we expect to happen if nothing changes? I mean, is there like a certain timetable that we can say, you know, by this date, if nothing happens, we could be looking at ecological disaster? It's really hard to put a timetable on something like this. You don't know whether whether it will be a long, slow slide or something more precipitous than that. But we do know that whatever the shape of that behavior may be, that it just does not make sense in terms of human welfare or the environment. How do you replenish a rainforest short of planting more and more trees? Well, the interesting thing is if you haven't hammered the land too much, that the rainforest actually can recover. It takes a while, but it, you know, within a rainforest, trees are falling down and gaps are coming into existence on a regular basis. There is a natural cycle for recovering from that. And if you haven't hammered the land too much, you can take advantage of that uh, and build back the amount of forest cover. Well, Tom, given the use of the land and the culture in, in that part of the world, where the land is raised so readily for cattle grazing, for so many other reasons, how do you stop that? How do you slow that down without government intervention? And how realistic is that happening? So, so the reality is the economics behind a lot of the destruction is really pretty marginal. And so, you know, it's a matter of setting up incentives so people tend to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. We know it will take a while to get to that point, and that's that's why we suggested that for any new increment of deforestation, there would be a match with about three times as much reforestation. And as it turns out, a large part of the deforested Amazon is actually abandoned and recovering just because it is such a marginal economic exercise. Let's back up just a little bit. When we talk about the Amazon, everybody talks about biological diversity this, biological diversity that. Can you tell those who may not know exactly just what that is and why it is so important? So biological diversity is is just a collective term for talking about the incredible variety of life on Earth. So it could be three species uh, on some rocky outcrop and off the coast of Maine, (laughs) or it could literally be millions of species within the Amazon basin. It's just a way to refer to all that variety. How much does Amazon help in the global fight against climate change, and what can we as ordinary people do to help mitigate its effects? 
So the climate change struggle is a really serious one. We're way, way past where we should be in terms of releasing CO2 to the atmosphere. Item number one, stop using fossil <laughs> fuels, which is basically old biology. It's old ecosystems, gas and oil. But the other important thing is just to actually think about the Amazon differently, recognize it as this treasure of biological diversity, any piece of which could turn into something really valuable. And that's already happened over time. And so what we want to do is avoid losing the 80 billion tons of carbon that are above ground in the Amazon rainforest and having that go into the atmosphere. And at the same time, while we're conserving the Amazon, uh, explore that biological variety and find some things that could be extraordinarily beneficial to human beings. A lot of people are now finally waking up to the very real threat of global climate change. Heck, it's become a hot-button political issue in the presidential election. Why do you think it took till just now? people to really open their eyes to understand the danger that we're facing? Well, it's a really good question, and it's almost puzzling that it took as long as it did. <laughs> um, but I think one has to recognize that there has been some pretty deliberate confusion of the issue by vested interests in the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, you look at the behavior of the fossil fuel industry today, they're still mostly about continued production and burning. I read somewhere that your path towards becoming a biological conservationist began at a zoo. I think you, you and I have talked about that a little bit. Tell me a little bit about that experience, how you got started, and some of the things you remember from that, and how it shaped your worldview. So, so when I was a little kid, I, you know, I was interested in animals. Uh, I had no idea about science. But I did have a fascination with animals. And when I was looking for a school to go to, the first on the list for irrelevant reasons turned out to be a school called the Millbrook School, which has a zoo. And I said, oh, wow, you know, this is where I want to go. I don't want to go anywhere else. And then it turned out that the biology teacher who had started that zoo had a required course. And I literally said, oh, I'll take it the first year and get it over with. <laughs> and here I am. Uh, by, the, by the end of that course, I actually understood the outline of life on Earth, uh, which today, in fact, we call biological diversity. You had told me a little bit about feeding a cheetah. Can you tell me how that came about and what was it like? Were you scared? I would have been petrified. So so the, the zoo is basically largely run by the students. It is, in fact, today. They even breed endangered species. And we did have a cheetah when I was about 15, and I got to take care of this cheetah. And what most people don't know about cheetahs is they actually domesticate and tame quite easily. So I literally was able to not only hand feed the cheetah its horse meat, but I could even take the meat back out of its mouth. It was that tame. <laughs> you weren't ever scared? No. You know, it's just cheetahs are almost like giant pussycats with an enormous loud purr. So when they're happy, you know they're happy. <laughs> Since you started your career, you spent a lot of time in the Amazon. I think you went, first went there, was it 1965? That's 66, right. 1965. What about that region fascinates you and, and why? Well, you have to sort of understand that I had developed this fascination with the variety of life on Earth. And there is no more anywhere than in the Amazon. 
So when I got the opportunity to go, I basically never looked back. I like to say it's sort of like being in a biologist's gigantic Christmas stocking and you never get to the end of it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny in talking to you, the time I've known you, I've, some of the moments you've described to me have always really stuck out with me. Spending time with indigenous tribes, seeing nine-foot anacondas, although you, you weren't too, uh, too, too bothered by them. I, I might have had another, another reaction. But just seeing creatures that the rest of us just see in books. Bird-eating spiders, um, harpy eagles. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these experiences and which ones really stand out to you the most? Well, there are lots of great stories. <laughs> uh, but maybe, maybe it would be really interesting to the listeners to hear about the harpy eagle, uh, which is essentially the second largest and the most powerful bird of prey in the entire world. And they nest on very tall trees which emerge above the rainforest canopy. And as it turns out, they're very quiet. So there had been one nest within 200 meters of my favorite camp, probably there for years. And it was almost by accident we discovered it was there. Anyway, they're they're really powerful birds. Their claws are almost like your fist. And literally, when they're hunting for monkeys in the canopy, they will ball up their talons just like a fist and fly at the monkey, punch it out, and then the monkey drops to the floor of the rainforest, and the harpy eagle is down in a flash and gets it with its talons. Wow. (laughs) That's a bad day. For the monkey, <laughs> great day for the eagle. What about spending time with indigenous tribes? I mean, what was that like? I mean, being so far removed from civilization, and in a lot of ways, being in another world entirely, free of technology. You know, I've, I've had the privilege to actually spend some time with indigenous people, particularly with the Kayapo in the southeastern Amazon. And what is so interesting about them is just how incredibly smart they are. Smart about the forest and how they can make a living out of the forest, but also able to fast forward to essentially the 21st century and understand GPS systems, global positioning systems, or have a video machine or the like. Wow, was communication a problem? Uh, As it turned out, the Kayapo have a number of members of the tribe, at least in the village of Aucre, who spoke Portuguese. When you're in the Amazon, are there any creature comforts or are you battling the elements? It's actually quite comfortable. If you're outside of the forest, it's really hot. Inside the forest, all the trees keep the temperature from being too hot. So literally when you're sleeping in a hammock at night in the forest... When your body temperature drops in the middle of the night and your metabolism drops, you're really happy to have a blanket in the hammock with you. No worries sleeping here, all the noises out in the forest, sleep comfortably? I love the noises in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tom, where do you see the Amazon in 10 years? And what about 25 years? Do, Do we have reason to be optimistic here? When you talk to a number of the governors of states in the Amazon, not just in Brazil, but other countries, you talk to the current president of Colombia and others, there is real concern about essentially getting a handle on the situation and, and creating a pathway to sustainability. What advice would you give any young people who want to help the Amazon, help restore the Amazon, and 
maybe contribute in the fight against global climate change? So I, th I think the very first thing is just to learn a fair amount about it, which you can probably do easily online these days. But when you go to the Amazon, no matter how much you think you've learned in the books or from your computer or anything else, spend a lot of time listening to the people who live there. They like that respect, and there's a lot to be learned from them. What is their connection to the land? So it, it's, it's highly variable, right? So the, the people who really understand the rainforest, who basically have been living there for centuries, most of them actually make a living not too differently from what the indigenous peoples do. And they use the rivers for transport. They use the rivers as a source of fish for animal protein. They plant some of the more uh, useful tree species that produce fruit and other useful things. They grow cassava, which is basically the major staple uh, of the Amazon, uh, native to it. And they find commercially useful elements of the forest like Brazil nuts uh, and are able to make income selling those. So every Brazil nut you have ever eaten came out of the Amazon rainforest. Oh, wow. They do not grow in plantation. Wow. Is everybody pretty welcoming to ha having outsiders among them? I would say, generally speaking, that people are welcoming, but a lot always comes down to what previous people have done in their right. interactions with them. Right. Well, Tom, thank you so, so much. I mean, you've got some fascinating stories, and we really love and appreciate all the work you do on behalf of the, the Amazon for the whole world's climate. So thank you. Best of luck to you, and we wish you nothing but success. Well, fun to talk to you about the green and gold of the Amazon. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.